Okay, this is the first of three lessons that we're planning to have this weekend on the Holy Spirit. And um, I'd like to begin with the words of Jesus. If you have a Bible handy, if you could open up your Bible uh, to John chapter 14. I'm going to read from a passage from John chapter 14 and also from John chapter 16. I'm reading from the New King James. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. Jesus, this is, of course, the night before Jesus was crucified. This is in his part of his farewell discourse. And uh, he's speaking to the, the apostles about very important things. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's turn a little further on in the, in the same discourse in John chapter 16, a little longer passage, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So... The reason why we decided to focus on the Holy Spirit in our in our house church, we we really like to uh, to focus on expository preaching. And one of the reasons we like to do this is because it's not just Chuck and David talking about our favorite subjects. It forces us to cover a lot of things that we never would would cover on our own. And one of the things is we're just as we're just studying through the Gospel of John. We run into we ran into these powerful passages that talk about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about he's going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to be with them, who's going to be the helper, who's going to be convicting the world, and he has to die so that the Holy Spirit can come. So it just it struck us the Holy Spirit is obviously of tremendous importance. But the problem that we ran into is as we stopped and took inventory of our own backgrounds, and, and in our house church, most of us are from a Church of Christ background, one type or another. From our backgrounds, there was very, very little teaching on the Holy Spirit. So we realized, wow, this is something that's really important. We need to take a look at it. So in, in studying these passages, we also looked at related passages in the Scriptures, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and, and 22. Another passage about the Holy Spirit says, Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, who's also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So 
Holy Spirit is obviously awfully important. And, and the background that we came from, now look at the room here, and I would say about half of the people here are from Church of Christ backgrounds, and the other half are from a variety of different backgrounds. I would say uh, uh, any people from Anabaptist backgrounds, but, uh, but, but there are other, other backgrounds represented here as well. And I think the thing that ties all of us together, as opposed to most of the, uh, the, most of the uh, Christians in the United States, most of the Christians in Pennsylvania, is that we not only believe the Bible is the Word of God, but that we need to do what it says. If we love Jesus, we have to follow his teachings. It's not just a matter of believing. We have to do what he says. We had a... Uh, we have a teaching call with some young Christians in the Middle East who are from various different backgrounds. And some of them understand the kingdom message better than others. But uh, one of the brothers who's leading the group, he says, we want to we really get people started on a foundation. So I said, the first thing you need to understand, we studied this about a week or so, a week or two ago, we studied this. They said, first thing you need to understand is what saving faith is as defined by the Bible. So we went through examples in Hebrews chapter 11 and said, faith that saves you is not just believing, it's also obeying. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. It, it's, it's obeying, and it's persevering through the end. Moses persevered because he saw him who was invisible. So that's like the sound of one hand clapping. That's an impossible thing to figure out. But I think we know, we know what it means, actually. So... Uh, but, but to express, express, explain the idea that the spiritual foundation is, which I think all of us in this room share, no matter what background we, we come to, we've arrived at, is that if we want to follow Jesus, it's not just believing, it's obeying him. It's obeying his teachings, it's obeying his hard teachings, and then, and then persevering all the way to the end. And so at the end of the class, uh, I open it up for questions. And I got one of the questions was priceless, and and the, the the young Christian from the Middle Eastern country says, "Okay, now I understand. You have to obey the teachings of Jesus to be a Christian." He said, "What are the teachings of Jesus?" So uh, I thought, "Wow, boy, is that a good question?" And so. Uh, so what we did in the next class is we said, let's start in Matthew chapter 5. And then we, we, uh, we did not pull any punches. We did not soften any blows. We went right through Matthew chapter 5 and started laying a foundation of these are the commands of Jesus. And if you're going to be a Christian, you have to do, you have to follow these things. So, uh, and I think that's something where whatever backgrounds we've come from, I think that's something that draws all of us together uh, very closely. And uh, that, 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 that we understand that. Now, this, the whole, the, the, now the question is, okay, now, so in the Christian world in general, people look at us and say, well, you people are, are you're, you're legalists. You don't understand the grace of God, and you don't understand the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit uh, you know, it's like like uh, it, the Holy Spirit lets you glide through life where you don't have to follow all these hard commands. So you, you have a very legalistic view of the Christian faith. And uh, so I think we need to be prepared to address those questions. And if, if there's any truth in it at all, then, then make, some, make some changes in the process. But that's a, that's a, 
that's an, that's a criticism that that people from this room, uh, no matter uh, where you where you uh, are worshiping right now, you're getting hit with that by by several people. The tendency to look at us as being legalistic, and many of us have either personally or as a legacy of the backgrounds that we've come out of have reacted against a lot of teachings on the Holy Spirit. I'll give you some examples. Now, study, study the Bible. Somebody says, uh, we study on divorce, remarriage, or study on head covering or something like that. Somebody who's a believer. And then, and then the person will go off and they'll pray about it and they'll say, you know, I really appreciate everything you had to say, but I prayed about it and God has revealed to me by the Holy Spirit that I really don't have to do this. Okay, so... That, that could, if, if I didn't know any better, that could give me a little bit of an attitude about the Holy Spirit. But it, actually, it's no reflection of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures that we're reading in the first place. So, uh, Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He's not going to be telling somebody privately something he, differently than what he's telling everybody else uh, publicly. So, the challenge of that, a challenge some of us in particular can relate to is being in groups where the leaders would say, We've decided to do X, Y, and Z, and it's because the Holy Spirit has led us to do this. The Holy Spirit is leading us personally to making these decisions. We're the leaders of the church, and this is God moving here, and who are you to question the Holy Spirit? And that's, it's a, that's hard. How do you come back to something like that? So I, I've seen the Holy Spirit used by people to push human agendas in the church. Uh, the other thing is uh, in, in, the, in, in the, some of the more Pentecostal churches to see things going on there that that are that seem a little strange to me. So there's that the whole the whole issue about the miraculous gifts and the miraculous manifestations and some very strange things that are going on in the, in the religious world. And I was I was brought up in a church where I was taught. Uh, that the miraculous gifts are no longer around, that they died off of the first generation, the apostles, and, uh, you know, come back to, to, to take, take a, another a second look at uh, what I was taught about all these things and try to, try to sort this out. So, but it all, it all, it's all tied in with the Holy Spirit. So in our background, the Holy Spirit was downplayed or ignored for the most part. Now, when we study the Bible to become Christians... They had, the studies were all about what the Holy Spirit doesn't do. David mentioned that earlier. It's not what the Holy Spirit does, not what the Holy Spirit is, it's what the Holy Spirit doesn't do this. Holy Spirit doesn't do this anymore, Holy Spirit doesn't do that anymore. So, you know, just just wondering, okay, what is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do? And, And the church would teach that the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and the Holy Spirit would be mentioned in connection with uh, John 3, you must be born again of water and the Spirit, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. So the idea that you receive the Holy Spirit when you're baptized was taught, but what that means was never, never ever explained to us. And I wonder why the Holy Spirit is mentioned so prominently in scriptures, and, and here Jesus is talking in a very powerful way about the importance of the Holy Spirit. He says, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come. Holy Spirit is something that's awfully important, according to Jesus. So I was wondering why in a church that, that I was raised where we were taught a tremendous emphasis on the Word of God and following the Scriptures, 
was there so little teaching on the Holy Spirit? And I discovered it wasn't by accident. There's a story behind this. And I wanted to share this with you. Not only those who are from similar background uh, as, I, as I'm from here, but uh, also because I think their history tends to repeat itself. Or if it doesn't repeat, it, it rhymes. The same kind of patterns tend to happen over again. So this tremendous lesson. As David mentioned earlier, many of us come out from uh, Church of Christ backgrounds, Restoration Movement, early 1800s, and um, in, uh, largely in, in rural America. And um, it was actually the confluence of two different movements that never totally seamlessly blended with each other. Uh, they're they're uh, personality-wise very different, but there were some sim- similarities between the two. One was uh, Barton Stone's movement, and Barton Stone, a lot of people from our background don't know this, they've heard the name of Barton Stone. Barton Stone was associated with Cane Ridge Revival, sometimes referred to as America's Pentecost. So you can guess what was happening at Cane Ridge. And there were, I read some first-hand accounts, and there were some wild things that were going on. This is a rural revivalist movement where... People were laughing like crazy, falling down, barking like dogs, doing all kinds of strange things that were going on, which people thought were manifestations of the Holy Spirit. How much it was legitimate, how much it was excessive, where you draw the line, I don't know. But there was tremendous activity going on. This is, Barton Stone was right in the middle of that. At the same time, you have Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell, a very cerebral guy, who looked around and he saw the subjectivism and the emotional focus on personal experience that people were having in the country where people who wanted to be saved would be sitting on a bench and praying and praying and waiting for a certain experience on the inside and were frustrated because they weren't encountering it. He says, well, this isn't the way at all. So you had you have these two currents coming together they shared a lot in common of just desire. Let's just be Christians. Let's follow the Bible. But you had these two currents coming together. Uh, there was a tension between these these two different different perspectives. Uh, about a hundred years into it, 1905 to 1915, there was a clash, a major clash that that erupted about the Holy Spirit and the churches of Christ, and. Uh, this, uh, on, on the one side, the, one of the great proponents was James Harding, who's a, a great hero of mine. And on the, on, the side, on the other side was Dr. J.C. Hallowell. And they clashed over the, whole, over the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I want to present to you the two views that they had and what happened and as a result of that. Okay, the Hallowell, Dr. Hallowell and those with him, Their attitude was, they said, look, in the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. Okay, so you sow the word of God. He said the Holy Spirit has already said everything he's going to say, and he's already done everything he's going to do. Meaning, everything the Holy Spirit had to say is in the scriptures, and everything God was going to do by the Holy Spirit was already been done. So basically, all you have to do is scatter the seed, which is the Word of God, study the Word of God, share the Word of God. The Word of God does it all. There's really no need for the Holy Spirit. Uh, And another scripture that we were all taught right at the outset is um, 
Uh, 2, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And uh, this is in the Churches of Christ, a huge foundational scripture. And uh, it's great, great scripture, but I'm going to read it to you in the version. This is the King James Version of 1900, which is what they would have been reading from. And I'll tell you how Hallowell explained it. The scripture from the King James Version says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, which means complete, throughly furnished unto all good works. So Hallowell said, well, the word of God is given to us so that we can be complete. Therefore, we don't need anything else. That's the point that he said. We don't need the Holy Spirit. All we need is the Word of God because of what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. If we're complete, we don't need anything else. And also in Ephesians 6, the, the, whole, the, the, the Word of God, as, as you recall, is the, is the take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that's the, also the offensive weapon with which to attack Satan. So the attitude that Hallowell and those with him expressed was God created the world, sent Jesus, established the spiritual laws, and he just leaves it to us. Those laws are embodied in Scripture. He leaves it to us to follow those laws. So the conclusion they made was the Father, Son, and the Spirit are no longer directly intervening in human affairs. They're no longer actively involved in what's going on in the world. They just gave us the book, read the book, and follow what it says. So what does that, what does that tell you about the importance of prayer? <laughs> okay. Okay, so if you're wondering why there haven't been a lot of great classics in prayer and devotional life coming out of the churches of Christ in the last hundred years, this may have something to do with it. I see David Bursos nodding his head here. So you know what I'm talking about. So in, in that corner, in one corner in the arena, we had Hallowell and those with him saying, we have the Bible, that's all we need. The Holy Spirit is unnecessary, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are no longer directly involved in the affairs of men. They've given us the book, study it. Do what it says. That's all you need. You're complete. In the other corner, we have James Harding, who's personally a great, great hero of mine. He's a famous preacher and teacher in the Churches of Christ. Uh, he lived from 1848 to 1922. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about James Harding, when he died, uh, one of his students eulogized him. And here's what he said about Harding. So, so don't get the idea that it's the people who love the Bible versus the people who are, have a low ver view of Scripture. Here's what he said about his mentor, Harding. This is R.H. Bull. He said, he said his mentor was one who sent more people to reading the Bible than any other preacher. He infused his own love and appreciation for the Word into those who came under his sway. And uh, it says that Harding encouraged daily reading of the Bible, three and a third chapters every day to read. He encouraged all the Christians to read through the Bible every year. And everywhere he went, he formed Bible reading clubs. And he'd, get, he'd pass out cards for people to pledge that they're going to read through the Bible in the whole year. 
And that's what Bowles said. I've never seen any preacher get more people excited about reading the Bible. Harding believed that the chief duty of the teacher of the church is to lead people to the daily, diligent, prayerful study of the Word. And he devoted more energy to that than to anything else that he preached on, getting people into the Bible. But Harding saw the goal of Bible study as relational, exposing us to the mind of God through the Scriptures so that we can be shaped into the image of Christ. He said, God is the author of the Bible. We should read it that we may know him. And by 1914, remember, he died in 1922. By 1914, he said he'd read through the Old Testament 60 times, and he'd read through the New Testament 130 times. So this, this man is passionate about the Word of God, and he... he was in, he was he was transmitting this to his students this this fervor for the word of god harding's attitude about the holy spirit and uh, you you got to put yourself back into the, the early early 1900s here um, he said the spirit is like electricity to a trolley car the holy spirit okay those of you in boston or we still have the electric trolley cars in boston He says, you can't see it. It's mysterious. But without it, the car is just a hulk of rusting iron. That was his attitude about the Holy Spirit. And he talked about this passage I quoted from 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, Scripture does not teach the Bible alone thoroughly furnishes man for God, uh, uh, the man of God for every good work but that the Bible, in addition to what had already been given, does so. He said, I'm as far removed as the East is from the West, from believing that neither God nor Christ nor the Holy Spirit can help us except by talking to us. Okay, so do you understand what he's saying? And Paul says, God gave us the word of God so the man may be thoroughly equipped. It doesn't mean that's the only thing you need. It's mean, it means in, on top of all the other things that you have, he's given this to you so you can be thoroughly equipped. If I gave you vitamin A so that you would have the full complement of vitamins, does that mean that's the only vitamin you need? No, it means you, you, that's the only thing, your last thing, one thing that you're lacking so you can be thoroughly equipped. Okay. There's something that Harding said in in, uh, 1906. He said, I feel sorry for those who were afflicted by these dreadful, blighting, semi-infidel, materialistic notions that leave God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, wholly out of the Christian's life. For those who think all spiritual beings left us when the Bible was finished, and you think we now have to fight the battle alone. Some of these people pray, but what they pray for is more than I can tell, unless it's just for the reflex influence. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I don't know what these people are praying for. They're praying, it's form. They're just, they're praying out of reflex or out of habit. They don't really believe that God's going to answer their prayers and is involved in what's going on in the world. 
Harding's favorite text on the Holy Spirit. John 7, 37-39. I'm reading from the, again from the King James that he read from. It says, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, that he, he that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Though the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And Harding followed up that quote with a rhetorical question. He says, who is to receive the Spirit? Jesus answers, any man that believeth on me. So what happened? You have these two views in the churches of Christ that are completely incompatible with each other, that are clashing with each other. Harding died in 1922. And by 1930, Hallowell's view basically dominated in the churches of Christ. This view that God just gave us the book and, and, and left it to us at that point in time. And that the Spirit does not even dwell inside of Christians. The legacy that this created in the churches of Christ... Decades of teaching the Holy Spirit doesn't actually dwell in Christians. I think most churches of Christ would teach that he, that he does now, but that's what happened. It produced a mechanical religion, studying to find the formulas and then following them. Basically looking at the Bible as if it's a math book. Now, I'm an engineer, okay? I could do that, but that's not what the Bible is. It's not study it out, figure out what the formulas are, and just plug in and plug and chug and solve the formulas. A lack of spiritual power. A lack of deep prayer in the inner life. Strict teaching that all miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit had passed after the apostles and were no longer around. And uh, the result was a church that had very strong emphasis on studying and knowing the Bible, doing what it says, and following the patterns and commands that contained in it. But my impression, and this is friendly fire, okay, because I've been in one or another Church of Christ for over 30 years, but looking at the legacy of what this produced, it's a legacy of brittle, wooden, mechanical, by and large, churches and Christians lacking an inner life, with a tendency to focus on and split over extremely minor issues of form that the Bible says little or nothing about. Focusing on doing things the right way and forming doctrinally flawless churches and, and, and a lack of emphasis on, on spiritual unity, unity of the Spirit with other Christians. So this was a major sea change that took place in the Churches of Christ about 100 years ago. A lot of other changes happened along with it. The, the Churches of Christ were known for non-resistance. Today the Anabaptists are. But the, but the Churches of Christ are not, although I see a lot of evidence of a resurgence of interest in that. The Churches of Christ were known for being not conforming to the world in many ways. And, and they ended up conforming to the world and getting caught up in patriotism and in the South being actually one of the most segregated churches in the whole country. 
uh, which is not what they were before. So, so that change that took place, that when when we here here we are, you know, when we decades later are studying the Bible and we're taught almost nothing about the Holy Spirit and we're taught that all the things the Holy Spirit doesn't do, that's what it came out of. It's a tremendous lesson to me of, of a couple of things. One is the danger of seeing a problem and then going off the deep end and reacting, reacting the other way. Seeing a real problem, I think, with emotion-based religion that's purely subjective and personal experience-based rather than based on the Word of God, that's a problem. But, but reacting in complete opposite direction of basically throwing the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit out altogether. Just the Holy Spirit inspired the, the Bible and then, and then left and is gone. So the, the danger of that, and also um, when, when a religious movement gets off on the wrong foot, it can take an awfully long time, like hundreds of years, for the problem to get corrected, if it ever does. So uh, we have to be very careful about how we build. So the Holy Spirit, why is it important for us to understand the nature of the Holy Spirit, and the character of the Holy Spirit, which is what I want to focus on in, in the remainder of this, this lesson here. Why can't we just line up all the commands of Jesus and, and, and do what they say? Why do we have to focus on who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is about? Why do we really need to focus on the nature of God? It sounds like a, a, a kind of an empty theological question. Well, I don't think it is. I think how we see the nature of God is crucial to how we live our lives. Think about the first sin. When Satan goes up to Eve and tempts her with eating the forbidden fruit her response is, no, God says we're not supposed to do this. So he, he, she rebuffs him with the command of God. But then Satan attacks by undermining the nature of God. She says, well, if we eat this, we're going to die. She says, oh, no, no, you, you certainly will not die. In fact, God doesn't want you to, to eat of this fruit because if you do, your eyes are going to be open and you'll understand uh, good and evil and you'll be just like God. So Satan is attacking Eve's view of the character of God. She's saying, first of all, God's a liar. Okay, God doesn't tell the truth all the time. He said you're going to die if you eat it, you won't. I'm your friend, he's not. And then the other thing, the other thing he's, uh, he's saying is that um, uh, God wants to keep you down. He's not out for your best interests. I am. He's trying to keep you oppressed. That's why he doesn't want you to eat the fruit of that tree. So he gets Eve to sin by distorting her view of who God is. I think for a healthy spiritual life, it's essential that we have a clear picture of who God is. And I, I think if we look at so many of the great examples of faith in the Bible, and also the great examples of sin in the Bible, a lot of it goes back to how people saw God. Noah says that Noah obeyed and built the ark in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, why did he do it? He did it in holy fear. God told him he's going to destroy the world, and Noah believed he could do that. He believed that God is all-powerful and can wipe out the world. 
Why did Abraham in Genesis 22 do the great act of faith and and take his son up to kill him and he was actually going to kill him? Why would he do something like that? What was he thinking about God? Well, God had told him that he's going to have many descendants through that son and he believed that God doesn't lie. So he reasoned himself, it says in Hebrews, well, God told me to kill my son, but he's going to give me many descendants, and he is the creator of the universe. I guess he's going to have to raise him up after I kill him. So he reasoned that God could raise the dead. But he saw God as a a promise-keeping God. Uh, Job's three friends, their attitude to God was, you did something, you're, you're, you're suffering in life, it must be because you did something wrong. It's all about their, their view of God. The difference between Joshua and Caleb versus the, the ten other spies. They all saw the giants and the opposition and the walls. But the attitude of Joshua and Caleb was, well, God can do this. God took care of, the, of, 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 of Pharaoh and he took care of the armies of Egypt. God can, God can win this battle. God can... God can defeat these people. They saw It's how they saw God. Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Why didn't they give in? They said, in Daniel 3, they said, Our God whom we serve is in the heavens, and he's able to deliver us from this burning fire. Because that's how they saw God, that God can do anything. And uh, he said, he'll rescue us from your hands, O king. In Daniel 3.17. David going up against Goliath. Why did he think that he could defeat Goliath where everybody else was intimidated? He said, well, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. He saw that God could do it. It's his view of God that made him a man of faith in all these cases. There's so many things. The difference between Zechariah and Mary. Okay, Zechariah, when Gabriel goes to Zechariah, he doubts this father John the Baptist. He, he doubts it. He says, look, I'm an old man. And my, my wife is old and, and childless. How, how is this going to happen? He, he doesn't believe that God, can, he doubts that God can do this. Angel, Gabriel goes to Mary and the angel says, he tells her she's a virgin and she's going to conceive, which is more, uh, which is a greater miracle by far. And the angel says, just reminds you, says, well, you're going to conceive through the Holy Spirit because nothing's impossible with God. And Mary believes that because she, because she, he says that that's her view of God, that nothing's impossible. With God, God can do anything. So how we view God, I think is a real, it's important foundation for our spiritual health. It's not just a matter of follow, you know, making a list of the rules and following them. I think if we're going to be able to rise to the challenge of faith that God puts in our life, it's going to be having an accurate view of who God is. And we see this revealed in the stories of men and women who had faith or didn't have faith in the Old Testament. Now, what kind of problems do people have today? What kind of spiritual diseases are caused all around us by distorted views of God. I mean, one of the most common distorted views of God is God's the great enabler. 
Now, you, you see what happens, I'm sure, if you're in a store and you see parents that don't discipline their children. They just give them whatever they want. They, they, they turn up, they, they, they're terrible parents. And I think that's the, the attitude that they ruin their children, and that's the attitude people have towards God, is that God is, is that kind of a parent to me. He's going to be the great enabler. I don't have to obey anything he says. He's going to cover it all. Other people swing to the other extreme, and they see God as the great inspector. That he's out there with his magnifying glass and his tape measure. And he's inspecting, looking for the perfect theology. He's looking for the perfect church. He's looking for the perfect following all the rules. Some people's attitude about God is that God just wants everybody to be happy. So obviously, any command of God that leads to people being unhappy can't possibly be from God because God wants everyone to be happy in this life. So obviously, your marriage doesn't work out. You're not happy. We'll get divorced and get remarried to somebody else. I mean, that's because after all, God wants people to be happy. Or seeing God as a distant father, which is, I think that's what Hallowell's attitude was. He's, he's, He's distant and he's removed. He's far away. He's uninvolved. There's no reason to pray. Or the Calvinists who believe that God is basically a monster, that he just arbitrarily decides, I'm going to save you, I'm going to condemn you, and it has nothing to do with anything that you do. So the character of God, understanding the character of God, is so important for our own spiritual lives. So the Holy Spirit, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, And I want to take a look at specifically the Spirit. What is the Spirit? What is the character and the attributes of the Spirit? Well, first question I have is, what does the word Spirit mean? Well, it's it's a, uh, uh, you you can pretty easily, it's the word there is uh, nevma, or it would be the Greek pronunciation, or if you you, uh, Englishize it, it'd be pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, okay? So you think of, what I think of is pneumatic, all right? A pneumatic tire is a tire that has air in it, so you can bounce. If you had, if you drive in a car that didn't have any air in the tires, and it was solid rubber, it would be it'd be uh, awfully hard. Or anybody have pneumatic tools? Anybody, uh, any of the uh, craftsmen here? A pneumatic tool is a tool that it's not run by electricity; it's run by air power. So you have an air line and a compressor, and that's the idea. It's it's wind, it's air force, the force of air. Uh, or somebody has pneumonia. It's a disease of the lungs. It's a breathing problem, basically. So uh, the the word that means spirit, nevma, it can mean in the scriptures wind, spirit, breath. It can be used of an evil spirit. It can be used of the Holy Spirit of God. It can refer to the spirit of a person. The, as David Rousseau pointed out, that there's the, the in, in the scriptures it talks about our spirits and our flesh, okay? And the spirits is uh, the part of us that includes our feelings, our will, our spiritual being, okay? So we are made up of, man is made up of flesh and spirit both. So, so, now, I understand the whole idea of what is the spirit. I think of the passage in James. It says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without 
uh, action is dead. Now let's take the first half. Is the body without the spirit is dead? All right. So body, spirit in the body, spirit leaves the body, you're dead. So that's basically that's the that's the that that, that communicates what the spirit is. It's the living part of you that when it leaves, you're just a dead corpse. That's all that's left behind. Now, one of the challenges is, as, as David pointed out in his lessons, is that the word spirit, uh, there's no capital and lowercase s's. So the only way you can tell is by context. Is, is he talking about an evil spirit? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit of God? Is he talking about the spirit of a man? Or is he talking about the wind? Jesus in John 3, 5, he's using a play on words. He must be born again of water and the spirit. The wind blows wherever it wishes. So it's the same, the same, the same word is used uh, is like a play on words. The terms for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is described as differently as the Spirit of God. Okay, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Now think about that. It refers to as the Spirit of Christ in 1 Peter 1.11. It says, talks about the, the, the prophets who searched in what manner the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In John 14, 17, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, which is a beautiful description. The Holy Spirit is never going to lie. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. It's also the Spirit of Christ. Difficulty in understanding the nature of the Holy Spirit. To me, it's much easier for my mind to grasp the Father and the Son than it is the Holy Spirit. Be honest with you. Okay, Spirit is like wind. It's this, uh, I'm thinking about it's wind, it's breath, it's fluid. Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove when Jesus is baptized. I'm trying to think. Okay, how do I put my mind around what that is? The Son of God I get, eternally begotten before all ages and became flesh in Jesus. So I can understand who the Son of God is. The Father who created all things visible and invisible and is the source of the Son and the Spirit. I can get that. But what is the Spirit? How do you understand that? Uh, can you think of any early Christian writers who talk about the Holy Spirit and the nation of the Holy Spirit? So I went back and uh, uh, I thought, well, what about the uh, the Apostles' Creed? It says, "I believe in this." It says, "I believe in the Father," and explains about the Father. I believe in the Son, explains about the Son, and then it says, "And I believe in the Holy Spirit." Period. That's all it says. That didn't help me. So I'm going to try the Nicene Creed. So the the, the church, the bishops get together and they try to hammer out the the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They talk about the Father. They talk about the Son. And then the statement about the Holy Spirit, the original Nicene Creed, it says the same thing. I believe in the Holy Spirit, period. So I guess their attitude was, well, everyone knows what the Holy Spirit is. It's not controversial, so why should we have to explain any more than that? The challenge is about the Son and the nature of the Son in relation to the Father. A little later, 381, the uh, the version of the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed was added to, and they added more about the Holy Spirit, and this is the version growing up Catholic I was familiar with, and it talks about it starts out the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It says, we believe in the Father, God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things that are visible and invisible. Okay, fair enough. 
Then it talks about the Son, a lot about the Son. And then it says about the Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and who spoke by the prophets. So I said, wow, that gives me a lot more to work with here. And I thought about this, and I said, well, who cares what the the Creed of uh, 381 says? Is this actually what the Scriptures teach about the Holy Spirit? And I went back and and considered that, and, and I thought, yes, it actually does teach all those things. Proceeds from the Father. In the Western Church, they added sometime later, proceeds from the Father and the Son, but I read the Orthodox Eastern Church version. So he proceeds from the Father. The Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father. The Father is the source of the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord and giver of life. So I said, okay. I, I, I was used to that expression, but is that is the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life? What does that mean? I started thinking about it. In Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit is there. And then in Genesis 2, 7, it says that God breathed into the man the breath of life. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, the idea of being breath or wind or spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of the dry bones, let's take a look there. Think about this. I never thought about this in connection with the Holy Spirit. So here is the Lord and giver of life. Again, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the midst of the plain, which was full of human bones. So he led me around about them. Behold, there was a great multitude of bones on the face of the plain. They were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know this. Then he said to them, Prophesy to the bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones. Behold, says the Lord to the bones. Behold, I will bring spirit of life upon you. I'll put muscles on you and bring flesh upon you. I'll cover you with skin and put my spirit in you. Then you shall live and know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And it came to pass when I prophesied that behold, there was a shaking. And the bones came together, each one to his joint. So I looked, and behold, muscle and flesh grew upon them. Skin covered them over, but no breath was in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds and breathe upon these dead men and let them them live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the spirit entered into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great assembly. So this is, can these dead bones live? Says, no, the spirit can do it. The spirit can bring life into the dead bones in the valley of the dry bones. As I mentioned earlier in their conception of Jesus, the angel Gabriel says that Mary's a virgin. And the angel Gabriel says that uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
and the power of the highest will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit would give life. In Romans 8.11, talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Paul says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that's pretty powerful. It says the spirit is dwelling in us. It was the spirit who raised Jesus's body from the dead. And that spirit will raise us from the dead also. The idea is of him as being the Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the source of life. He's worshipped and glorified in the story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Ananias lies, and Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. He says, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. So clearly, Peter's attitude is that the Holy Spirit is divine. It is God. And of course, who spoke by the prophets. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. Peter and Paul both talk about that. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. So the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force like gravity. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. It has a will. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is divine. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are talked about many times in Scripture together in the Great Commission. In the baptism of Jesus mentioned in all four Gospels. It talks about the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, the birth of Jesus is only mentioned in two of the Gospels. Why is the baptism of Jesus mentioned in all four? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. This is a verse that many early Christian writers, refer, uh, uh, at least a few early Christian writers refer, refer to uh, in connection with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is, to me, one of the key verses in all Scripture on the Holy Spirit and also explains why the baptism of Jesus is, is contained in Scripture, in all four Gospels. Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a rod from the root of Jesse, and a flower shall grow out of his root. The Spirit of God shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. I'm reading, this is, I'm reading from a verse based on the, the Septuagint. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of, spirit of knowledge and godliness, the spirit of the fear of the Lord shall fill him. He shall not judge by reputation or convict by common talk, but he will judge the cause of the humble and reprove the humble of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the word of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the ungodly. He'll gird his loins with righteousness and cover his sides with truth. So first it's talking about Jesus. Come forth a rod from the root of Jesse, and the flower shall grow out of his root. So Jesus is obviously descended from Jesse and David. It said, the Spirit of God shall rest upon him. And then it describes the seven characteristics of the Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and godliness. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. This is the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, that the Spirit would rest on Jesus. One of the early Christian writers, uh, Justin Martyr, talks about this and uh, in dialogue with Trypho, and he's, he's arguing with a Jew about this Scripture. And, and Trypho says, well, look, 
If Jesus was the Son of God before all ages, why did he need to have the Spirit to come down on him? He already had everything in the first place. And Justin Martyr says, he says, it says that the Spirit would rest on him. The Spirit would rest on him. And it says that, he says that uh, Jesus was full of the Spirit. John 3.34, it says he was given the Spirit without measure. Okay? So Justin Martyr says to Trifo the Jew, he says, he was given the Spirit without measure. All seven, all seven characteristics of the Spirit. Wisdom, counsel, knowledge, godliness, fear of the Lord, that Jesus had all seven given to him. The Spirit was given to him without measure. He said all the other prophets just had one or two of the seven. He said Solomon possessed the spirit of wisdom. Daniel that of understanding and counsel. Moses of might and piety. Elijah of fear. Isaiah that of knowledge and so on with the others. He didn't mention this, but Samson, you guess which one he had? You know, he had, he had, uh, he didn't have the wisdom for sure, but he had, uh, he had the power. So, uh, so the picture is that on all of the prophets in the past, they received some parts of the Spirit. But on Jesus, the whole Spirit, all seven qualities came, and the Spirit rested upon him, meaning there weren't going to be any more prophets to come after Jesus. And he challenges Trifo, he says, why do you think it is that there haven't been any prophets that have come since Jesus and John the Baptist? Because the Spirit has rested on him, gave him the full measure of all seven qualities, all seven attributes of Spirit, and then Jesus now gives that to his disciples who follow after him. So I will, uh, I'll stop right there. I just wanted to uh, open up your your mind to prepare for the rest of the weekend to think there's just the spirit is very important uh this is what jesus is talking about the coming of the spirit before he dies we don't have to overreact to abuses on either extreme regarding the holy spirit we should be studying the spirit and embracing the spirit the importance to appreciate the sevenfold character of the spirit to see that the Spirit is involved is the Spirit of life, who the Spirit that could bring life into the dead bones in the Valley of Dry Bones, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit who lives in us and who will raise us up from the dead when Jesus returns. We will continue tomorrow with more. Thanks, bye.